Hey, my true crimers, it's your host, Jonah B., and welcome to another episode of True Crime-ish, where we try to tell the stories as true as possible around here. You know, I thought outside was ghetto now. It just seems to be the same twisted cycle as the previous centuries beforehand, actually. Like, folks are committing heinous crimes, throwing stones and hiding their hands, completing unspeakable deeds in the dark, all while forgetting everything that is done in the dark will come to light. Happy Monday, y'all. Another week, another awareness campaign I want to highlight because I know if there's one thing us true crimers like to be is aware. So it's actually Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And even with it being 2024, there is some poor person who is being held captive against their will, being forced to complete acts I could not even begin to imagine. Both slavery and human trafficking is an ongoing problem, a problem that we should all make it our business to know how to identify and prevent. I will provide a link in our show notes that will take you to a U.S. Department of Defense page to gain some useful knowledge. It's a very good read, but without further ado, let's jump into this week's story. On February 26, 1999, in Decatur, Georgia, just a few miles from Atlanta, Georgia, a groundskeeper for a small neighborhood cemetery was up prepping the grounds for a burial that would take place later that day. While he was completing his groundskeeping duties for the cemetery that lay next to a wooded area, the groundskeeper discovered human remains in that very same wooded area that morning. He called the police out, and once they arrived, they saw the decomposing remains lying in the woods just like the groundskeeper said that they would. They saw a small body still dressed in a blue and navy plaid sweatshirt, red jeans, and Timberland boots. There was no obvious cause of the death that the detectives could see, but they did determine that the body had been laying in the woods for about three to six months based off the decomposition of the body. And I'm sure that they were thinking that this case would be squared away pretty quickly since, you know, this appears to be the body of a child. I'm sure the detectives just knew that there were some distressed parents or parent ready to claim their child. But the detectives would have another thing coming. Once the autopsy was complete, the medical examiner found a couple key things. For one, there was traces of some over-the-counter drugs found in the child's system. And y'all, I wish I could say these very scientific words, but my Southern speech, along with all this metal and braces along, you know, in my mouth, won't let me be great. But anywho, there were large doses of the active ingredients that are found in Benadryl and Tylenol in the child system. And for two, the child also suffered from a fractured skull. The medical examiner was not able to say what exactly caused this child's death, and they also were not able to positively ID the body. 
All that the investigators could determine was that the child was a male in between the ages of four and eight. He was African-American. He was between 45 and 60 pounds. And he also ranged from the heights of three foot 10 and four foot two. None of the missing person reports that they had matched the remains that they found. And no one was stepping out looking for the child. So the medical examiner was forced to give the child a doe name. John Clifton Doe, also known as Dennis. I don't know where they got Dennis from. I guess they maybe like looked at the outfit and was like, it's given Dennis. But yes, that was his name. In an effort to give this child his name back, an artistic rendering was created based on the profile that the investigators came up with. The image was generated and released everywhere in 2000, but not one hit, clue, or lead was created from that. And, you know, let me go back. I won't say not one because in 2001, investigators did receive an odd call saying that the remains belonged to a Cable Brown and that they know the child and the child's family because the child's family constantly visited Florida on the regular. But the call was disconnected shortly after the comment was made. The call was traced back to Cocoa Beach, but nothing ever came from the lead. With the first two years blowing by, everyone was wondering when would Clifton Doe be claimed? The story of our Clifton Doe would touch the hearts of many, but one crime reporter would be wrapped in the case from the beginning and would spend many years breathing life into it. Angeline Hartman, former Fox News reporter, was on the scene day one when investigators were initially brought out. Once she realized that the remains that were found were those of a child, she felt as though it was her personal duty to keep up with the story and to see it through. Over a 19-year time span of Clifton Doe lying in the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's office, Angeline wrote many pieces on his story in hopes of getting answers for Clifton. No matter what job she was at, she constantly shared the details of Clifton, from Fox News to America's Most Wanted to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, where she eventually served as the media director. She made sure that she was always creating pieces for Clifton. It was this very organization that decided to complete an updated artistic rendering picture of Clifton Doe. New technology had been released since 2001 when the first one was completed, so Angeline was hoping that this time would make all the difference. She believed in her heart that this would be the time someone stepped forward and that a break would be made in the case. Angeline was also preparing a special segment on her podcast, Inside Crime with Angeline Hartman, to release details on the story the very same day that the new picture was released. Angeline's goal was to make sure that everyone knew that this young boy did not have a name yet and was hoping that this new reconstruction would help put an end to this two-decade-old case. So on February 26, 2019, the picture was released to the public and everyone had their fingers and toes crossed. And crossing the toes must have done the trick because in 2020, a breakthrough had finally occurred. A woman by the name of Ava saw the new picture that was being released by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and called the tip line right on up. 
This Ava claims she knows this kid and his mother, and this kid is no Clifton Doe. He is William Deshaun Hamilton. Ava went on to say she used to be friends with his mother, Teresa Bailey, and used to babysit William all the time back in 1998 in Charlotte, North Carolina. She said that Teresa took William to Atlanta for a while, and once she returned to Charlotte the following year, Teresa... I'm sorry, y'all. This like new thing that was added to my brace is kind of like a rubber band, but it's permanent and it's like metal. It got me talking so funny and I'm still trying to get adjusted to it. So hopefully just make it through this episode and we're we going to be better. We will be better next week. I will have gotten used to it. But anywho, like I was saying, she said that Teresa took William to Atlanta for a while. And once she returned to Charlotte the following year, Teresa no longer had William with her and told many conflicting stories about where he was. Ava had been concerned about William for the past 20 years and was overjoyed to have found the picture of him online, but saddened to know that William was no longer with us. And this information opened the frozen case, like just busted down wide open and sent the investigators on a path for justice for William. Investigators began researching, analyzing, and tracking down William's family. They located his dad, who apparently had no idea that his son was dead and was very much confused since he had paid child support for many years in the past for his son. I tell you, I swear sometimes women just embarrass me with our antics, but... Let's keep moving forward. After running his DNA, they were able to be sure without a doubt that Clifton Doe, a.k.a. Dennis, was in fact William Deshaun Hamilton. It was time for the investigators to speak with Teresa Black. Teresa was found living in Arizona with her longtime partner and 18-year-old daughter. Not at all trying to hide, just, you know, out here living her life like nothing had ever occurred. When police first picked Teresa up, and told her that her son William was dead, Teresa displayed confusion, pretending that she had never even had a son or ever stayed in Atlanta. The confusion eventually turned to shock when she admitted that, you know, okay, you got me. I did have a son or I do have a son, but I had no idea that he was dead. Like what? And that shock turned into remorse when the detectives had finally backed Teresa into her corner, and her truth began to come out. She said it was all an accident, really. Like, hear me out, hear me out. William had been sick days before his death, and she had been giving him medicines to try to help his sickness. But she went on to say how the two of them were homeless, and that night before, she picked them a comfortable little spot in the woods to sleep. And once she woke up that morning, she found her son dead lying next to her. She didn't really know what to do, so she said. So she just left him there and eventually went back to Charlotte. With the confession in hand, the detectives went ahead and took Teresa to a holding facility where she would wait to be extradited back to Georgia to face her charges. Teresa Ann Bailey grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina during the drug epidemic of the 1990s. Teresa was raised by both parents along with her brother, Ernest Bailey. 
Teresa and her friend Wanda Hamilton would link up and roam the streets of Charlotte together doing, you know, whatever teens do. And her brother, Ernest, also knew the Hamiltons. He was friends with William Hamilton. And Teresa had a very big crush on him. So they eventually became a couple. And in the midst of their steamy relationship in 1992, 14-year-old Teresa ended up pregnant. Months later, her and William welcomed William Deshaun Hamilton Jr. And they were a family for some time throughout their five-year relationship. Things weren't always smooth selling, though. The relationship had become extremely toxic. During one of their breakups in 1994, 16-year-old Teresa moved in with 40-year-old Jimmy Lee Samuels and his 23-year-old girlfriend, Tamika Wooten. And, you know, I'm not sure how she knew these very grown people or where William was, two-year-old, that is, William, was at this time, but... Anywho, all three of them were living in a boarding house in Southwest Charlotte. Jimmy and Tamika already had their own toxic relationship going on. So when they got into it, which was often, Teresa wouldn't usually intervene. But one day in May, the two got into it really bad. And Jimmy pulled out a golf club and started just going to town, like hitting Tamika multiple times. And it was at that point that both Teresa and Tamika tried to leave when Jimmy started chasing them and the two began fighting again. Teresa dipped off somewhere and reappeared with a gun. She fired one warning shot and then she shot Jimmy in the back. He died from his injuries at a local hospital just a few hours later. Police initially charged Teresa with murder, but she later pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter in September of 1994. She was then released from prison just one year later at the age of 18. So while Teresa was in prison, William Jr. was being shared in between William Sr. and Teresa's mom. But as soon as Teresa got out of prison, she got William Jr. back and started seeing someone else. That's when things changed and William Sr. started seeing less and less of William Jr. Teresa stayed in Charlotte with William for a few years, giving him a sense of stability while spending time with her immediate family. He was excelling in school and Teresa had a routine set for him with a babysitter that she trusted. You know, they were just, they were doing okay. In 1998, Teresa pulled six-year-old William out of school and they moved to Atlanta. It was hard on them at first and Teresa and William had no family in Atlanta whatsoever. So she had to resort to getting assistance from the Atlanta Day Shelter for Women and Children. Soon after, Teresa found a job working working as a dancer at a local strip club called Pleasure. And clearly the environment was not giving stable because it wasn't a year later in 1999 when Teresa returned back to Charlotte solo. When William Sr. and Teresa's family asked about William, she gave them conflicting stories as to where William was. Throughout 1999 and 2003, Teresa was arrested a couple more times for nonviolent crimes 
then she basically fell off the radar within the legal system, that is. In 2004, she rekindled with a friend from her past named Laquise Black. A year later, in 2005, Laquise and Teresa became a couple and had a baby girl, Nakia Black. The two eventually got married in February and moved to Alaska in March. After that, now Teresa Black stayed off the radar until about 2010 when she was being sued for unpaid medical bills. Years later, in 2017, Teresa and Akia moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where she had been living up until her arrest. Now, going back to after that confession that Teresa gave... DeKalb County detectives arrested her and sent her to the Maricopa County Jail, where she was being held without bail. Teresa was charged with two counts of felony murder, two counts of child cruelty, aggravated assault, and concealment of death. Teresa's first court hearing was July 13, 2022, where she agreed to be extradited back to DeKalb County, Georgia. There was some questions as to if Teresa would be able to travel since she was in a wheelchair and she had medical tubes in her nose, hinting at some type of medical problems, but she was transferred anyway. By December 2022, Teresa had been at DeKalb County Jail for a few months. During her arraignment, she entered a preliminary plea of not guilty. Almost two years later, on January 2nd, 2024, just a couple weeks ago, jury selection was set to start in State versus Teresa Black. So prosecutors laid the case out graphically, but very thoroughly so the jury could understand the amount of perseverance and determination it took in order to bring William Jr.'s killer to justice. Prosecutors allege Teresa killed William Jr. by giving him too much cold medicine, hitting him over the head, and then dumping his body in the woods. From the manner that William was taken abruptly from his stable environment, moved to a new state, and later homeless, Teresa was to blame for everything that happened to William once he left Charlotte, and prosecutors gathered the, the evidence to prove it. The defense, on the other hand, tried to paint Teresa as a good mom who took really good care of William and just made a bad call when she left William Jr. there on the ground that night or that morning that was. Prosecution's first and main witness was Ava McNeil, and she spoke to who William Jr. was and the things that he liked to do. She told them how her, Teresa, and William built a strong relationship and how she sometimes recalled Teresa abusing William Jr. She told them how, at first, Teresa told them William Jr. was with his father's grandparents. And throughout the years, Ava said that she found it strange that William Jr. never came back to Charlotte. So one time she cornered Teresa and asked, where is their baby? Their baby being William Jr. And Teresa's response was like, girl, what? What you think? You know, he back home with his grandparents. You think I killed him or something? Ava finished up her testimony by telling the jury a about a run-in that she had with William Sr. She said that he came up on her while she was getting in her car one day and asked her where William Jr. was. She's like, like, what do you mean? She told him what Teresa told her, which was that William Jr. was with his grandparents, you know, your, your mom and dad, which William Sr. said was not true. 
She never knew what really happened to William Jr. until the day that she saw the photo in 2020. Further witnesses, the DeKalb County detectives, gave a timeline of the full investigation along with graphic pictures of William Jr.'s remains. The original medical examiner, Woody Hall, testified, and Gary Harris, the person who discovered William Jr.'s remain, testified as well. And I just got to say major kudos. To me, it's pretty amazing that the majority of the people involved in the case were able to testify so many years later. So shout out to us. Moving on, on day two, Teresa's entire police interview where she denied ever having a son was put on display for the whole courtroom. William Jr.'s grandma, Margaret Hamilton, gave her testimony that once Teresa got out of prison, she had limited contact with William Jr. She said that Teresa told her on several occasions that William Jr. was with his godparents. William's aunt, Wanda Hamilton, testified that she befriended Teresa on Facebook and she told her that she would give William Jr.'s her phone number, but of course, Wanda never ever heard from William. William Sr. testified as well that he got the same responses his family got about William Jr. living in Georgia. Laquise, her current partner, testified about their relationship and how he thought William Jr. lived with his grandparents as well. The next day, with the defense only calling one witness, closing arguments were delivered. And on January 9th, on to the Jerry's hands that it went. The verdict came one day later. Teresa Ann Black was found. Not guilty, y'all. Not guilty of felony murder, cruelty to children, or aggravated assault charges. The jury did, however, find Teresa guilty of concealing Williams Jr.'s death. And as the counsel read, Williams Sr. stormed out of the courtroom. WSB TV spoke on two jurors who weren't exactly happy about the acquitting of Black. But they said their jobs were to consider the evidence, not to judge Black's decision. There's a quote from Nathan Middleton, one of the jurors. He said, yeah, it was emotional for all of us. That was one lady who was crying in the jury room. We all wanted to see things go differently. But at the end of the day, we had to go with what the law was. And, end quote. And all the times that... you. The jury will really be messing up. This is one time where I'm like, what? Now, now you care about the law? Now you care about the law? But DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston expressed her disappointment at the verdict in a press conference held that day. While we respect the jury's verdict, I would be lying if I said we weren't disappointed. We still believe she is responsible for young William's death. Teresa Bailey may have walked out and abandoned her son in 1999, but today I'm proud to say that the people in this room and in this community never did. Today, William Deshaun Hamilton has his name back and he will never be forgotten. And that's a direct quote coming from Sherry Boston. DeKalb County prosecutors say cold cases are difficult to prove, but they would be sure she served time in prison for what she was convicted of. Two days later, on January 12th, Judge Stacy Hydrick was ready to sentence Teresa, but not before William Jr.'s family and loved ones gave impact statements. 
William Sr. asked for the maximum sentence Judge Hydrick could give Teresa, saying, and I quote, I don't know what to say. Whatever you can give her, just give it to her, end quote. Ava gave her statement as she described the impact William Jr. had on her and how his life would have been. She said that he had so much love to give. I believe it was a huge loss to the world that his life was cut short. William's grandmother, Margaret, called in to give her impact statement and how William's death and the trial messed with her mentally. After hearing from both lawyers, Judge Judge Heydrich had made her decision. 10 years, the maximum. Judge Heydrich said, and I quote, as a mother, I cannot fathom how you could leave your child in the woods to rot. There were so many other options and it did not have to end this way. But your choices in leaving William's body in the woods, never reporting him missing and lying about his existence for over 20 years and are not only appalling, but also resulted in the complete destruction of any evidence that could have determined what actually happened. We're left here still with no answers. You are the only one who knows what happens, end quote. Part of Teresa's sentence will be adjusted due to the time that she's already spent in custody, which is like a year and some change. So her attorney says that they plan to appeal the conviction. But for the time being, Teresa will be busy serving the rest of her eight-ish year sentence. By all accounts, William Jr. was an amazing kid with family and friends that loved him. Per Ava's account, William was reading encyclopedias before kindergarten and talking about wanting to be a doctor. Ava described him as someone who liked to crack jokes, as someone who liked to draw, color, and mainly read books. She exclaimed that he didn't want you reading to him. He wanted to read to you. She described him as a fun, witty, adventurous, and intelligent little boy who loved to dance. During his short-lived life, he made a huge impact on many of the adults in his life. From his daycare teacher to family and friends, they all had nothing but good things to say and happy memories to share about William. His impact prompted over 20 people to testify on his behalf and helped give justice to his name. William Deshaun Hamilton, no longer missing or unidentified. In conclusion, y'all, William's case sheds light on all the other missing and unidentified children all over the U.S. His story is one of few, especially because William was never actually reported missing. It was with the help of someone whose life William impacted that truly helped reclaim his name. Every person that knew William asked about him constantly. And Teresa's lies continued to shield her from the true horror she committed towards William. As far as Teresa's punishments go, the jury in William's case felt that they did, under the law, what they were allowed to do. And in my opinion, Teresa stayed silent for all those years, not because of guilt or fear. To me, she stayed quiet because of self-preservation. Her life didn't stop what Williams did. She moved on. She even had another child and built a family. She had a completely new life. She wasn't going to give all that up because of a child she had already left in the past. She didn't care about lying to people all those years about William. And she sure wasn't going to tell anyone anytime soon. 
I believe the way she saw it, she could have taken William's secret to her grave. But the thing that we always have to remember is, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, what is done in the dark, oh, it will be brought to light. And that concludes this week's episode. Thank y'all for tuning in. I can't wait for you guys to hear our Missing Monday case next week. Until then, bye y'all. Bye.